Okay, well, I've been giving a series of talks on the ten perfections, and today I'm going to talk about the last three perfections and do a quick overview of the four perfections before the last three perfections because I spoke at another center about the four perfections and I don't want to leave you out. So what are the ten perfections? These are the ten perfections of Theravada Buddhism not the six perfections of Mahayana Buddhism, similar but not the same. The ten perfections are perfection of giving, perfection of morality, perfection of renunciation, the perfection of discerning wisdom, the perfection of energy, the perfection of patience, the perfection of truthfulness, the perfection of determination, the perfection of loving-kindness, the perfection of equanimity. So, a little bit about the perfection of wisdom. What is wisdom in Buddhism? And more importantly, what is wisdom in Theravada Buddhism? Wisdom in this case means seeing the true nature of the phenomenal world the inherent emptiness and impermanence of all things. Wisdom entails a deep insight into the four noble truths and karma. Now, emptiness and impermanence, which would be anicca and anatta, are often misunderstood. Because things do exist. Things seem to be permanent. We are deluded and we are ignorant in the way we view the world. The thing about impermanence is sometimes it happens really quickly and we don't notice it. And sometimes it happens really slowly and we don't notice it. But the aging process that we're all going through is a good indicator about how ignorant and delusional we are about our own impermanence. So if you haven't seen somebody in 10 years and then they spot you in a crowd, they may be surprised at what you look like. And on the other hand, you just think you look the same and always have because every time you've looked in the mirror, the same face looks back at you. It's slow and gradual until you have that first accident on the 405. Then it's rather rapid, this impermanence and change. and often costs a whole lot of money to put you back almost how you used to be. So we have the opportunity of really getting into some deep insights about Buddhist wisdom because everything is always changing and nothing exists the way we think it does. So this emptiness, this anatta, this not-self, this not-soul, this not-ego is probably one of the most difficult things to understand because we think we exist. And actually, the process of I, me, and mine exists, but not the event. None of us are ever an event. We're always constantly changing, and we are conditional. We don't exist separately. We don't exist uniquely. We are a combination of factors, ever-changing. And if enough factors 
fall away, we no longer exist. So if you stop breathing for four or five minutes, you're dead. If you stop drinking water for seven to ten days, you're dead. If you stop eating food for 30 or 40 days, in my case maybe 50, you're dead. So these are conditions we don't even think about. We just assume they will always occur because they always have until that one day they don't. Now getting deeply involved in the Four Noble Truths is a fascinating way to investigate Buddhism because this came out of the first talk of the Buddha. He said, I have discovered four universal truths. Number one, life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Number two, it's unsatisfactory because we have desire, craving, attachment, and aversion. Number three, there is an answer. So he wasn't pessimistic, he wasn't negative, he was really just setting up the talk explaining, first of all, why you're suffering. And, you know, to be honest with you, when I first came to Buddhism in 1979, I had a good life. I wasn't suffering at all. And I kept listening to the Dharma talks. I kept sitting in meditation. I started to understand I was suffering. Then they came out and said, hey, there's something we can do about it. Uh, let me tell you. And what we can do about our suffering and achieve nirvana, the end of suffering, is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And those eight path factors allow us to achieve our liberation, our freedom. And what you need to understand about achieving your liberation and freedom is you don't need to go to Vietnam to do it. Right here, right now. So many people I talk to are going to the ashram in India because the guru is there, and that's the key to their enlightenment. And it may be the case, but I have found enlightenment exists everywhere, all the time, and we don't find it, we realize it. So that means to me it's always been there, but I've been too dumb and delusional to see it. And then I woke up one day, far, far in the future, maybe next lifetime, and then I realized, wow, I was already there. It's like being in L.A. and wanting to be in L.A. and you're already in L.A. And then you finally realize you're in L.A. and you don't want to be there anymore. <laughs> so it's coming to grips with the idea that we are already there, we just need to wake up to the fact. Karma. Man, this is one of the most important concepts that we can use to make our life better, less suffering, more successful, and happier. It says to me that I'm in charge because what I think, say, and do affects my future. And if I'm skillful, if my karma is based in generosity, compassion, and wisdom, the outcome will be good. Good in the sense of less suffering. Good in the sense of closer to peace and happiness. So karma is the tool we can use to modify our life anytime we choose. 
But the secret in using karma to your advantage is to be aware that it starts with thought. Our thought leads our speech and action into the world. We are in charge. We don't need a guru. We don't need a divine being. We simply need awareness. Virya, translated as perfection of zeal, the perfection of enthusiastic effort, the perfection of energy. Virya can both be mental and physical. Character, spiritual training will ultimately benefit others. Now, to be honest with you, when I found Buddhism and realized that I was suffering and could find an end to that suffering, I was so excited that I talked to everybody I could find about Buddhism. And I would go on not just with sentences, but paragraphs and full pages of the reflections I had been having the following week about how cool Buddhism was and how everybody had the opportunity to end their suffering if only they would listen to all the stuff I had to say. <laughs> I lost a lot of friends along the way. Family members didn't answer the phone when I called. It was one of those things I had to learn the hard way, that the path of Buddhism was for me. It was my path. It was my suffering. I could find a way to end my suffering. But nobody else could end their suffering the way I'm ending my suffering because their suffering was different. They had their own unique suffering. And I just had my suffering. So this zeal and enthusiasm for, enthusiasm for Buddhism needs to be tempered. We need to understand that not everybody is going to want or needs to hear what we have come to understand. And all along the path, our understanding is limited by how we've lived our life, the books we've read, the schools we've gone to, the experiences we've had. And I look back 10 years and realize what I had to say then may or may not be relevant today. Because I have 10 years more water under the bridge. And now I look at things a bit differently. And as you age, you're guaranteed to look at things a bit differently. So when you get to be 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, man, life changes, you know? And instead of looking far ahead into the future, you just want to have a good day today. <laughs> Kashanti, patience and forbearance, the ability to endure personal hardship and having patience with others. And this, for me, has become rather difficult because I live in a very overpopulated area of the city called Koreatown. And I find myself going to Ralph's grocery store a couple times a week. And it's never empty. There are always people there. And because of the cultural differences in this neighborhood, nobody shops alone. I'm the only lone ranger there. Everybody else has four generations with them. And you get in line, and there's 43 people. And there you sit. So my first inclination was to be the line policeman and line them up straight, make sure their food is on the conveyor belt and their cart is pushed forward expediate the process of purchasing a quart of milk. 
I gave that up because nobody listened to me, nobody cared. They resented me because I saw something they didn't, which was organization. So I just sort of sit there now and wonder why so many people have so many children. <laughs> I have come to no satisfactory conclusion other than the universe demands it from us. <laughs> so patience with yourself is one thing, patience with others is another thing, but both are wonderful opportunities to practice at any time in your day and any place. We have so many opportunities to practice Buddhism, to become perfect in patience and understanding, and it's our job to be aware of those times and places that are most beneficial for us to practice. The acceptance of truth, truth about suffering. See, I accepted that, and that's why I started to suffer. About yourself, well, truth about yourself usually comes about 3.30 in the morning. And you sort of wake up, and you go over what you did that day, that week, that month, that year, and you realize how many different ways you could have done it and been better. And yet, for some reason, you just did what you normally do, because you were programmed to do that through peer groups, education, family, personal experience. It's difficult to change. It's difficult to be another person. It's difficult to be a better person. And the truth can help, but truth is relative. Truth is relative. It depends on who's deciding what the truth is. Is it the group? Is it the majority? Is it the minority? How many different ways are we told what the truth is? And all you have to do is watch the evening news and find out what they think the truth is. So as I look at the truth, I realize the truth is arbitrary and relative. Relative truth is going 55 miles an hour in the freeway because that's what the sign says. But it's arbitrary because at one time it was 65 and sometimes it's 75. And who decides what the truth of that freeway is? Usually by committee. And they're paid big bucks to do it. And we follow the truth by going 55. And if we don't follow the truth, we get a ticket. And it costs us money. So we know the truth is good, and we know the truth is right, because it's cheaper to know it's good <laughs> and right. But there's an ultimate truth as well. And the ultimate truth cannot be spoken. It can only be experienced. It can only be felt. So if somebody tries to tell you what the ultimate truth is, take it with a grain of salt because your ultimate truth can only be experienced. And once it's formed in the words, it becomes nonsensical. That's what's wrong with koans. Koans are designed to be a gate to the ultimate truth. But when you hear the koans and what they're asking you, it short circuits your brain, so your relative intellectual mind falls apart, and then the intuitive truth becomes obvious but then there's no way to express it in any rational way. So in one koan, it might be, what's the, hand of one, what's the sound of one hand clapping? And the answer is to put your shoe on your head. And the Zen master goes, yes, you're right. <laughs> and everybody else in the room looks at you as if you're insane. 
But that's how ultimate truth is. Ultimate truth is designed to get past thinking and get you into the intuition. Get you into the intuition of your life. Okay, now we come to the last three. The last three. Number eight, perfection of determination. This is really hard to be determined to do one thing your entire life. You know, I've been doing this for 40 years now. And in 40 years, I sometimes feel I'm getting close. In 40 years, I sometimes feel as if I'm so far away, what's the point? And it, it just seems like such an amazing challenge to wake up to the reality of your life and yet somehow there's something in me that says, okay, you, all you got to do is do it one day at a time. And if that's too much, all you do is one hour at a time. And you think about the Four Noble Truths, you think about the Eightfold Path, you think about karma, you think about all the meditation you've done, all the talks you've heard, and realize that it's part of it, but that's just getting you ready. Those are creating the conditions necessary for you to become enlightened. And none of us know when it's going to happen. Uh, the, one of the famous Zen stories is a Zen master in Japan, and he'd been practicing many, many years. And one day he was sweeping the front, and one of the rocks he swept hit the wooden fence and made a sound, and that sound triggered his enlightenment. Now, he had no idea that that was the day or that was the sound. But what he did do was continue practicing. He had the perseverance necessary to have a practice and realized until the practice turned into performance, he had something to do every day. The perfection of loving kindness. I don't know why it took so long for it to get here, but it's finally here, the perfection of loving kindness. A few thoughts on loving kindness. In Buddhism, love never stands alone. Doesn't work. Because it usually gets translated into lust. Which is fine. But that's not love. So love is always connected to kindness, which is the expression of love when you're a Buddhist. Okay? So, does loving kindness mean that only other people are loved and you're kind to. Well, the cool thing about the loving-kindness practice is it starts with you. Always starts with you. Because you've got to be kind to yourself in order to be kind to others. And you sort of have to like yourself. I'm not going to use the word love, but you've got to like yourself enough to like others. And this can be difficult for a lot of people because sometimes when the other is in the room, you may not like them for whatever reason. Usually it's delusional and ignorance, and you don't understand enough to like everybody. So you pick your group, you pick your tribe, and you like them the most, and then you like others almost, and then sometimes you sort of have indifference, and then sometimes you have this sort of feeling of, yeah, I don't know, maybe it would be better if they weren't here. <laughs> you know? So we have different levels of kindness and liking. And the idea with the loving-kindness meditation is to start with yourself and go out into the universe. So may I be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May my parents 
partners, pets, be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May my relatives and my friends be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May all the people I don't like and all the people I don't know be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May all the people that have a mind or not, may all the beings with existence or not, with all the beings with sensation or not, with feelings or not, may they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. So we, we try to cover everything, everybody, for as far as we can go into the cosmos. And then you come back to yourself. And you extend it out, and you come back to yourself, and you extend it out. It really does change the way you interact with other people if you start with that, if you start with loving kindness. You will look at people not as strangers, but as familiar. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I often do when I speak to large groups of people. There might be 500 or 600 people, and I look out, and they all sort of look familiar. And that is really a good feeling when you're doing public speaking, because usually everybody's a stranger and they're all sort of against you, you know? But they're not. That's just the way you perceive them, because you haven't connected to their heart yet. I learned long, long ago, you don't speak to people's intellect, because it's all over the map. Some people are really smart, some people are really dumb, some people are in the middle. You speak to their hearts. That's the place where everybody comes together. That's when they hear you the best. And loving kindness allows us to open the door to the hearts of others. Now, a lot of people are confused about loving kindness as if it's giving permission to people to be jerks or take advantage of you or make your life just terrible. It doesn't give you permission to let people do that to you in any way. What it means is you have now learned skillfully how to say no with kindness. Not making them feel bad because they don't know what they're doing or how it affects you, but you simply say no with kindness. And if they want to borrow more money and they haven't paid back the other money they owe you, you simply say no with kindness. You don't resent them or hate them. So loving kindness is a tool we can use every day to make our life just a little better because we look at everybody not as an enemy, but as a friend. Perfection of equanimity. Man, this is the heart of the matter. This is why we do what we do. It is one of the most important characteristics of nirvana. Equanimity perfect balance. Now, I was reading about this, and I loved what Bhikkhu Bodhi said about upeka, equanimity. He said, upeka is freedom from all points of self-reference. Freedom from all points of self-reference. So rather than using yourself as a reference point in your life, which we all do, because that's what we're taught to do, we use other reference points now. We might use the five precepts as a reference point. We might use compassion as a reference point, loving kindness as a reference point. We don't necessarily need to keep coming back to us because when we start to understand the Buddhist path completely, we recognize the fact that we're not there and we're not who we think we are. Now, 
the most important point I'm going to speak about today and might be the most controversial. But I'm going to do it anyway because that's the kind of guy that I am. <laughs> A famous monk once said, Buddhist equanimity includes the ability to see everyone as equal. I disagree. I have never seen anything as equal at a relative level. In my life, when I go out into the world, all I see is the inequality. I see some really tall trees and I see some really short trees. I see grassy knolls and I see bare dirt. I see people with big cars and I see people with no cars. I see people with great hair and I see people with no hair. And I'm thinking to myself, equality is a myth. We don't even start off as equal, let alone end as equal. Some people have a lot of money when they die and their family gets to fight over it. Other people have no money when they die and the families don't even go to the funeral. It's like, wow, where does this equality come from? And if there is no equality, what is there? What takes the place of equality? And this is what I have come to conclude after 40 years of practice and perceiving inequality in every day of my life, that Buddhist equanimity includes the ability to see everyone is connected. We're all connected. We don't deny the diversity of the universe. The difference is what makes life happen. We're not all the same. We're never all going to become one, which I hear in every church I go to, because God is one. But the Buddha didn't come from a Jewish background with the one God. He came from India with the many gods, a hierarchy of gods, some really good gods, and some really not so good gods. And a lot of them in between with some skill, but not enough. And you look at this, and you look at the cosmology of India, and you look at equality, and where is the equality? What I see is I see diversity. I see the many. I see how the many are connected. And I've often said this before, when you achieve enlightenment, you don't end your suffering. But I think what you do see is how things are connected, which gives you a big advantage in your life. It's not going to reduce your suffering, but it may help to reduce the suffering of others because you start to see how they're connected to the negative or the unskillful or the bad, and maybe you can help them break that connection and connect to the good and the useful and the skillful. Any way you look at it, you're going to be connected to something, someone, some circumstance your entire life. You will never stand alone and apart. Even if you have a hundred million dollars and buy that house on top of the hill and, co and construct a giant fence with cameras on every corner, they will find you. You will be connected. The trash man, the electricity, the water. You're connected. You can't unconnect. You can't disconnect. Even if you live out in the Thule's, and I know Sabota keeps posting all these pictures of cabins and lakes and forests. Even out there, you're connected. 
you got bears and squirrels and raccoons. You got a porta potty in the backyard. Get a well for water. You got kerosene lamps for light. You're still connected. You can't get away from it. So equanimity for me means to have perfect balance of mind in every situation, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, because I'm connected to it in some way. I can't escape. And if I can't escape, I need to engage. Buddhism is about engagement. It's an important thing. We don't run away. We don't hide our head in the sand. We're part of everything, and everything is part of us. We are the community of the universe, and we're connected. So if somebody says, everything is equal, I cringe. But being the skillful person that I am, I don't say anything. <laughs> I just cringe. Now, one more point about equanimity that I need to bring up is the difference between equanimity and indifference. Because some people think indifference is a higher state of mind. But it is not a higher state of mind. You can be indifferent to food and die from starvation. You can have equanimity about food and look at it as medicine to keep you alive so you can practice Buddhism and achieve your nirvana. It's not about indifference. And it's not necessarily about caring either. You know, caring for the world. We've got to care for everybody. We've got to do all that. No, Buddhism doesn't go there. Buddhism says, everybody suffers. You say, as a Buddhist, how can I help end the suffering? That's all. We're not there to change the world or change everybody. We're there to help people suffer less. And sometimes giving them a meal is helping them suffer less. Sometimes giving them a way to find shelter is a way to help them suffer less. But our job is not to save the world. You know, Buddhism says the world's always going to be unsatisfactory. It's never going to be fair. There's a lot of inequality in the world. People die for no good reason at all. People stay alive for no good reason at all. It just keeps going on and on. And all these political regimes, they come and they go, and everybody's happy when it's this way and unhappy when it's that way. But everything changes. Nothing is permanent. Nothing really exists in the way we think it does. So let go and enjoy the ride. But along this ride, we see we are suffering as well as everybody else. And the equanimity necessary to go into situations where everybody is suffering and not have it affect you, and yet you can be useful and you can be skillful in the end of their suffering. There's a Buddhist organization called Suchi. Isn't that right, Reverend Shanti? Suchi? Yes. And this is a Buddhist organization, and their job is to help. Their job is to end suffering. And when they had that big hurricane in New Orleans, and everything was flooded, and there was no food, and there was no water, and, and our government was saying, well, what are we going to do? They were there. They're in Taiwan. They were one of the first groups, organizations there. Why? Because people were suffering because people were suffering. So as a Buddhist, the equanimity we acquire through our practice of Buddhism allows us to go in a variety of situations and not absorb the suffering of others, but to help end the suffering of others. <laughs>